Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. There's a story told about a king who had a vast kingdom. Though he was uh, benevolent and successful throughout the course of his whole reign, he was a very old man by this point in time in history. And so he decided that there had come a time in his rulership that he needed to begin to seek out a successor, an heir to the throne. He had four sons, and he called each of them at separate times to see which one was most fit to rule the kingdom. When the first son arrived, he entered the throne room of the king and he sat down. The king spoke to him and he said, my son, I'm very old and I don't have much longer to live. I wish to entrust my kingdom to the son best suited to receive it. Tell me, if I leave my kingdom to you, What will you give to the kingdom? Now, this son was very rich, so he asked the question, and when asked the question, he replied, I'm a man of vast wealth, Dad, you know that. If you leave me your kingdom, I will give it all of my wealth, and it will be the richest kingdom in all the world. Thank you, son, the king said. Then he dismissed his son. A little while later, the second son entered, and he spoke to his dad, the king. The king said, my son, I'm very old, and I'm not going to live much longer. I wish to entrust my kingdom to the son who is best suited to receive it. Tell me, if I leave my kingdom to you, what will you give to the kingdom in return? Now, this son was extremely smart. So when he was asked the question, he said, Dad, you know, I'm, I'm a man of vast intelligence. I know a lot about a lot. If you leave me your kingdom, I will give it everything I know. All of my intelligence will be at the disposal of the kingdom, and, and the kingdom will be the smartest, most intelligent kingdom in the world. Thank you, son. As he dismissed his second son, The third soon entered, and the dad said the same thing. Hey, my son, I'm very old. I'll not live much longer. I wish to entrust my kingdom to the son best suited to receive it. Tell me, if I leave my kingdom to you, what will you give to my kingdom? Well, the son, the third son, was extremely strong. And so he replied to his father, Dad, you know I'm super strong. If you leave me the kingdom, I will make it just as strong as I am. It'll be the strongest kingdom in all the world. The king said, thank you, son. I appreciate that. He dismissed the third son. Sometime later, it had been late in the day, so the next day, the fourth son came along. And he entered the throne room. And the dad said the same thing. My son, I'm very old. I'm not going to live much longer. And I wish to entrust my kingdom to the son who is best suited to receive it. If I leave you 
the kingdom, what will you give to the kingdom in return? Now, this son wasn't especially rich or smart or strong, so he replied, Father, you know that my brothers are much richer, smarter, stronger than I am. While, I, while they've spent years gaining these attributes, I've spent time among the people in your kingdom. I've shared with them in their sickness and sorrow, and I've learned to love them just as they are. I've shared with them so much of what I am, but I don't have a lot. I know my brothers have more to offer than I do. Therefore, I, I won't be disappointed in not being named heir to the throne. But I will continue to do what I've always done. Within months, the king died. And the people anxiously awaited news as to which son would actually gain the throne. And it is with great rejoicing that the kingdom found out that the fourth son was chosen as the one who would be heir to the throne. Jesus came into this world as a baby in a manger to a very unimposing couple in unimposing circumstances in a town of a population most scholars believe was about three to 400 people, Bethlehem. We think in modern terms about how these cities were probably huge by the thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, and though today they are, in Jesus' day they were extremely small. Jerusalem would have been one of the larger ones in the area, Bethlehem being slightly southwest of Jerusalem by about three to five miles was about 300 people. So Jesus was born in an obscure town to an obscure couple at an obscure time in human history, but isn't it just like God to choose those things that the world deem as unwise or small to fool those who think that they are wise and amazing beyond their own belief? We come to a passage today that many of you know so well, probably because you grew up with it, even if you weren't in the church your whole life. You know the story of the birth of Christ. Traditionally, we look at least at this time of the year at the birth narrative, specifically in Luke's gospel, Luke chapters 1 and 2. Tomorrow, if you log in, you'll see Luke chapter 2 over a 10-minute period. And yes, that is very difficult for me to do only 10 minutes. Luke chapter 1, though, gives us the narrative of the proclamation of the birth of Christ to Mary by the angel Gabriel. And what I find super interesting is Gabriel pops up throughout the Old Testament and the New at very important points in human history. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. 
This section starts off with somebody who might seem also obscure to the story, but if you read a little bit further earlier in Luke's gospel in chapter 1, you'll read about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth were a couple that were up in age beyond childbearing years. Elizabeth had gone through this stage of life where she was unable to have kids anymore, but Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple, his priestly duties had come to bear on this specific year, and while in the Holy of Holies, it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, proclaiming that his wife would give birth to a son, and this son would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Zechariah, being a man of doubt, chuckled to himself and kind of scoffed at the idea with questions, how can this be since we're so old? And he was struck dumb, and I don't mean the kind that you use now. I mean the literal sense of he couldn't speak. Because of his disbelief, he was stricken with the inability to say words until months when the child was actually born. And he uttered the name John would be the child's name. Elizabeth also was a relative of Mary's. Most scholars believe she was a cousin of Mary's. And so this is why it's pertinent to the story, because it's one miracle after another miracle after another miracle setting the stage for the entrance point of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Mary was engaged or betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of King David. That's very important. We'll come back and revisit that in just a moment. Gabriel, the angel, appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Have you ever considered yourself favored of God? Some of you might because you know where you are in the grand scheme of history with your Savior. And that's awesome. But I would dare say most of us would, would, would kind of shrink back at the thought that we are favored of God. Why was Mary chosen above anybody else? Who is she to amount to anything within human history prior to this event? What made her more favored than any other woman? Why not some woman of wealth or power or esteem or strength or fame? Why Mary of all people? Suffice it to say, she was favored by God and chosen by God for an important task. And quite honestly, I think we are all favored and chosen by God for important tasks, but just because we're favored doesn't mean that we all step into that chosen task. Mary had a choice, and we'll find out what she chose. It says in verse 29, she was confused and disturbed. And she tried to think what the angel could actually mean. First off, if you have somebody more than likely in dazzling apparel that is a heavenly creature, a divine being standing in your presence, you're going to be confused and disturbed. But more than that, why else would she be confused and disturbed? Well, she's found favor with God. So if I was in her place, or maybe if you were in her place, you might be asking, what have I done so especially great that you would find favor with me? And again, he goes on to say, don't be afraid, Mary, 
for you have found favor with God. Second time he tells her that. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High, meaning, and you'll see it's all capped, all caps in your versions of Scripture, referring to the Holy One, God of all creation. He will be very great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And then listen to this. The Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Again, this will come back, and we'll, we'll look at this in just a moment. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, you know what's so interesting about this narrative right here? When the angel Gabriel is telling Mary this, was Israel a nation? Did they have any property or land to call their own? They were not a nation. As a matter of fact, they were under Roman rule. The Roman Empire was the empire that had this vast expanse around the Mediterranean Sea and almost all the way over into Asia and different places like that, all the way up into Europe, and we know it expanded up even to England, down into the middle section of the continent of Africa. Now, can you imagine being told that your son whom you will conceive by the Holy Spirit will be king over the nation Israel. And the nation Israel is still somewhat living in exile at the time of Mary. Some have traveled back home in pilgrimage and resettled Jerusalem. The temple had been rebuilt at this time. The walls, if you remember in the Old Testament, were rebuilt by under the leadership of a guy by the name of Nehemiah who has a book after his name in the Old Testament. But they still are not a nation. They haven't, they didn't become a nation until 1948. <laughs> okay? So keep that in mind. Then Mary asked the angel, with all of these thoughts, I'm sure, swirling about her head, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And though we can read in the Hebrew, the word for virgin also means young maiden or young girl. Specifically, she's not talking about just being a young girl. She's actually talking about having not ever had sexual relations. It still means the same thing today. And the angel replied, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is in her sixth month of pregnancy. For the word of the Lord will never fail. Oh, I love that. If there's no other verse <laughs> that you remember from tonight, that one small verse, 37 of chapter 1 of Luke, the word of the Lord will never fail. I love this because it's kind of a dual purpose. We mentioned last week in the sermon here at North Main, we looked at John chapter 1, and John uses this word play on the word word, or logos in the Greek. If you remember the first and second verse of John's gospel in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. So when I'm looking at Luke's gospel, 
And I see this verse that says, the word of God will never fail. This word of God that Luke is talking about is the word of God through the prophets in the Old Testament, the law of Moses in the Old Testament, who is now coming to fruition in Christ, the living word. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh. And what did he do? He dwelled among us. This very word in Colossians chapter 1 that Paul tells us that everything in creation finds its being and source in him. How did God create everything? You've heard me, if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, say that God spoke things into existence at the beginning of time. The voice that carved out the oceans, the vast expanses of the farthest reaches of the universe, who put the stars into place and the planets in the sky. That word that manifested all of creation now becomes flesh and dwells among us, and it's that word that will never fail. Mary responded, as we all should, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. And then the angel left her. The key point is this, and I only have a key point and just some things to back that up today. I don't even have a three-point sermon, which is really weird. (laughs) Jesus, the Son of God, ascended the eternal throne of a kingdom of peace And he welcomes us into that kingdom as sons and daughters when we receive him as king. And when we receive him as king, I might add, he receives us as son and daughters. We become children of the Most High God. Did you know some 500 years before Luke wrote this, before Jesus came onto the scene to this virgin girl named Mary, There's a guy by the name of Daniel in the Old Testament who also writes a small prophetic book. And did you know that the angel Gabriel appeared to him and talked about the coming Messiah? The same Gabriel that stood in front of Mary. Daniel chapter 2, however, when we read that section of the story, Daniel 9 is when we get Gabriel coming and talking to Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 2... There are advisors to this king. Daniel spanned several different pagan kingdoms with several different pagan kings, Nebuchadnezzar being the first of those. We have these kingdoms that rule after Israel is taken over. You have the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and I'm speaking of them in chronological order. You have the Assyrians taking out the northern kingdom of Israel. You have the Babylonians taking over the southern kingdom and Jerusalem and sacking the temple. And then after them, you have what are called the Medo-Persians, which is a huge empire that takes over. And then you have a greater empire than that called the Greek Empire. Do you remember Alexander the Great from your world history books? But they, they, as strong as they were, were not as strong as the next kingdom or empire, the Roman Empire. And so over this course of time in Daniel's narrative, you see up leading to Christ all of these kingdoms. But when Nebuchadnezzar has begun his rule over this vast territory, he starts to have these weird dreams. And he has this one dream of a statue. 
this fierce, mighty, big statue, and it's made of multiple different precious metals and even some clay. And so none of his advisors, none of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men could figure out what this dream meant. But somehow Daniel found out about it, and some of the advisors knew that Daniel had this ability to interpret dreams. And so Daniel gets called on to interpret the dream. And listen to how this goes. I want you to hear the connections with Luke chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2 this evening. While your majesty was sleeping, this is Daniel's interpretation of the dream. You dreamed about coming events that will happen in human history. He who reveals secrets has shown you what's going to happen. And it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God, but because God wants you to understand what's in your heart. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you this huge, shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight in your dream. The head of the statue was of the finest of gold. Its chest and arms were made of silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze, and its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and clay. And as you watched, there was a rock that was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. And it struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue, as a matter of fact, was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock, the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain, And it not only became a great mountain, it covered the whole face of the earth. That was the dream that your majesty had, wasn't it? Now, we will tell the king what it actually means. See, your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you ruler over the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You, king, are the head of gold. And as I spoke this at four o'clock, it happened upon my thought processes at the time. How interesting it is that Daniel proclaims through interpretation that Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest king represented by gold, and what happens to it in the end? It's not the most wealthy nation. It's not the most powerful nation because that's blown away with the wind that lasts forever. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours, will rise and take your place. How insulting of an interpretation to a dream would that be for you to hear? You are the greatest king, but an inferior king with an inferior kingdom will come and take you over. Not only humiliating, but humbling if you're willing to hear it, right? This this statue, this next kingdom, the inferior one, is represented by silver. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, 
the Greek kingdom will come. It will rise and rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one, as strong as iron. And that kingdom will smash and crush all, crush all previous empires as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. And the defeat and toes that you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay showing that this kingdom will be divided. Does clay stand up under much pressure? Wouldn't you think, how interesting is this? The statue, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then the foundation, the feet. What are they made of? A mixture of clay and iron. And where does the rock hit? The feet, where it's at its weakest. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron. But while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. See, this mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances together through intermarriage and treaties, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. And then here's the key verse. Listen to this. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. When did that kingdom get established? When did it come to earth? When was the ushering in of that kingdom of God? Do you know the vast majority of Jesus' teachings in his ministry? Do you know what they were about? Not forgiveness, not sin, not grace or mercy, not salvation. The greatest teachings of Jesus, the vast majority of them were on the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's that kingdom that will last forever. And it's that kingdom that God calls us to be citizens of. And it is Jesus who ushered in the kingdom and then gives the keys to that kingdom to his disciples. Do you remember when Peter and Jesus and the disciples are all around and they're having a conversation about who Jesus is? Who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a good teacher or a prophet. Well, who do you, Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Because that's really all that matters right now. And Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the son of the living God. Oh, and Jesus, like a proud papa, <laughs> lavishes him with praise and tells him that the kingdom is his. You are Peter, the rock, and on you I will build my church. During the reigns of those kings, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all of those kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock that was cut from the mountain, not by human hands. Jesus was born not by human Sexu sex sexual intercourse. He was born by the power of the Holy Spirit, overshadowing Mary and conceived through this virgin birth. Not by human hands, but by God and God alone. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future, and the dream is true 
and its meaning is certain. Basically, Daniel's saying, there's no way around it. This is exactly what that means. Take it or leave it. Do with it what you will. Now, flash forward. Jesus has now been born. He has grown up in a town in Nazareth. And he sets out on his journey for ministry. He spends about three years in ministry with 12 men and other women who had come to follow him as disciples as well. And it's coming toward the end of his time where he'd be arrested, led away, crucified, and buried in a tomb. We know three days later that Jesus raises from the grave. And no, this is not an Easter sermon, but you cannot know the birth of Christ without its conclusion. And so Jesus gives himself over to be crucified for our sakes, to take the wrath and the judgment of God for the sins that we've committed, not that he had committed. That's what we call salvation and grace, taking the punishment that we deserve. And he extends mercy to us, which is offering us something we don't deserve through his sacrifice on the cross. But then something amazing happens. He says in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, in his final parting words before he ascends to heaven, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you to the very end of the age. But he also tells them in a different passage, in a different gospel, he wants them to go on into Jerusalem and wait on him. He would send a helper. This is how he would be with us to the end of the age. And so on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival, there are so many people from so many different nations there worshiping and celebrating the day of Pentecost celebration. And I want you to hear what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they all filter out into the streets preaching and speaking of the good news of Jesus Christ that had just been crucified but had been resurrected and ascended to heaven. Now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they filter out into the streets and just like if there was a commotion on your street with great fanfare and activity, you would peel out into the streets to find out what's going on. And listen to what Peter says. You know, the one on whom God said he would build his church. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. He's speaking to the Jews that have been gathered there from all different nations around that area. So the Jews and the Gentiles were guilty. Guess what? We're either Jew or Gentile. That's how the Bible puts it. If you are not Jewish by birth, guess what you are? You're a Gentile. And he's saying, everybody's guilty. We're all guilty. We all nailed him to the cross. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him in one of the Psalms, and this is quoted in Acts chapter 2 by Peter to the people that day. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken. He is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. And then listen to this. 
You will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you fill me with the joy of your presence. Now, listen to what Peter says about David's words from the Psalms. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David was not talking about himself. For he died and was buried and his tomb is here among us. They're in Jerusalem. The tomb of David is there. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised with an oath that one of David's descendants would sit on his throne. See, David knew that covenant agreement and he knew that God is good to his promises. So David was looking, Peter says, into a future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. Do you see the seamless story from Old to New Testament? How Jesus became the fulfillment of the prophets of old and that God would solidify that promise by having a descendant of David remain on the throne forever. Because this kingdom is not a kingdom made by the hands of men, but is a kingdom beyond the kingdoms of this world. And though we are blessed to be a part of a nation that is one of the most amazing the world has ever known, there is a kingdom that our citizenry as believers in Christ is solidified for now and ever. The kingdoms of this world will pass and fade away but his kingdom will always remain. And that is the kingdom your soul longs for when you read the news, you watch the TV, when you read the paper, and you groan, wondering when all this will come to an end. So now, just as in the Old Testament, they waited on a Messiah to come to set captives free, and that Messiah wasn't recognized he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. He came into the world, and the world didn't recognize him, John chapter 1. We will have no reason at the second return of Christ. There is another advent that is coming that we are now awaiting like the first advent the people before us had been awaiting. And in that advent, the skies will part, a trumpet will sound, and there will be no chance of not recognizing him. <laughs> every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So don't believe it when you hear, the Messiah has come, the Messiah has returned. No, he has not. That is a false teaching from the pit of hell. The Messiah, when he returns, will be a global event. It would be instantaneous in the twinkling of an eye. This is what Jesus was trying to tell everybody to be ready because it'll happen just like that in a flash. But nobody knows the hour or the day. Jesus says he didn't even know, just the Father in heaven. And can you imagine being Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father on that one fateful day sometime in the future when the Father leans over to the Son and says, it's time. Jesus will be ready, and I pray that you will too. There is a king that is coming who has established a place for us. In John chapter 14, he told his disciples, I'm going to go prepare a place for you so that you can be where I am. 
do you know him like that? Because he's gone to prepare a place for you. What it takes is receiving him as king and lord of your life. We're going to share in communion. And as our ushers bring the elements forward this morning, my hope and my prayer is that as you take these elements again, maybe for the millionth time, maybe for the first time, that they are a renewal of a relationship. You see, Jesus took those elements the night before he was crucified or arrested. And at that Passover meal, he gave new significance to the bread and the cup that had been offered for centuries prior to his birth. Paul tells us not to take these elements in a way that is in any way besmirching of the character of Christ. So as you partake of these elements tonight, if you need to do some reckoning with God, before you take the first bite or the sip of that cup, surrender everything to God today through Jesus Christ. Let him be your King of kings, your Lord of lords, your wonderful counselor, your everlasting God, your Prince of Peace. We will partake of these elements in just a moment. But for now, while you're waiting, I pray that you would listen to the words, pray to God, and we'll take of these in just a moment. Heavenly Father, we love you. You are good, holy, righteous, and all that we aspire to be but know we cannot be, which is why we thank you for Jesus, who was everything that we couldn't be. Forgive us of our sins tonight. Thank you for the birth of Christ, which led to the crucifixion of Christ, which led to the resurrection of Christ, and the dealing once and for all with the problem of sin and death in the world. Thanks for providing a way for us into the throne room of grace with confidence because of Christ. We humbly step into that throne room now, not because we are wealthy enough, famous enough, strong enough, intellectual enough, but God, because you were all that we couldn't be, and we just receive it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.